Welcome to Secular Sexuality. This week we'll be talking with Bill Zingroni. But before we get into our interview with Bill, I'd like to make a couple comments. Occasionally I get questions. Why do you always talk about sex? Why are you so interested in sex? Well, the fact is, it's not just sex I'm interested in. I'm interested in helping people get comfortable with their bodies and open about their sexuality. And the big reason I'm interested in that isn't just to have better orgasms, although I'm happy if people have better orgasms. I have noticed that as people get comfortable with their bodies, comfortable with their sexuality, and open about their sexuality, they lose the shame and guilt they learn from religion. And they become more comfortable with themselves. They become more comfortable with other people and less judgmental of other people at the same time. It also becomes much more difficult for religion to infect somebody. Because once you feel comfortable with yourself and your sexuality, it's going to be really hard for a religion to come in and tell you you're wrong, or you should be ashamed, or you were broken from birth. That's what I've noticed. And that's why I think that attacking religion at its sexual roots is more important than almost anything else we can do. That's why I do this podcast. That's why I've written my books. That's why I love interviewing people about their journeys out. Because you can hear in their voices, once they became comfortable with themselves and their sexuality, the religious stuff started just flaking away really quickly. And that doesn't for everybody, as we've heard, but it sure seems to happen a lot. And I think as we learn to educate our children, to be open and comfortable with ourselves around children and around our, our, our grandchildren or whoever, those kids are going to grow up to feel comfortable and it'll be harder for them to get infected with religious notions about sexual guilt and shame. I want to take the shame out of sex. Once we take the shame out of sex, it's really difficult for a religious infection to remain inside somebody's head. So that's uh, kind of my observation for today. Another thing that came across uh, my desk was a comment by a dear friend of mine, Susie Box. And she wrote something that just really captured me. Susie's husband is German, and she lived in Germany herself, I guess, as a teenager. Her husband recently visited, went back to visit Germany, and he brought some magazines back, specifically magazines that Susie used to read as a teenager in German. So here's what she said. The magazines haven't changed a bit from when uh, I remember, except that the German language has changed quite a bit, utilizing more and more English terms. Well, that and the fact that there seems to be more targeted merchandising in their advertising. The comment I wanted to make about the difference between American teen magazines and German ones, nowhere in the U.S. versions here would you find discussions, advice columns, or questions about having sex, giving blowjobs with braces, contraception, masturbation, homosexuality, STDs, petting, or show full body nudity of both sexes. All these topics are openly and thoroughly discussed, and it's considered normal. I remember that from when I was a teenager in Germany, and we were talking 40 years ago. It is a much more open atmosphere, and one I wish we could learn how to adopt here. I think it would be great, greatly influenced teen births going down, seeing STD numbers decline in teenagers, 
not feeling so shamed about their sexuality among teens. But sadly, unless we rid this country of religion or puritanical beliefs, it will never change. So this is something I didn't know. I did not realize that teen magazines in Germany were so open in their discussion around sexuality. Can you imagine a teen magazine in the United States talking about blowjobs with braces? Now, that's a new one I hadn't really thought about before I read her, her post. Anyway, thanks to Susie Box for permission to read this, giving us a new education on teen magazines in Germany. If anyone's listening to this and has personal experience with German sex education or growing up in Germany with respect to how the magazines or sex education is, write me. I might like to talk to you. Sounds like an interesting topic for the podcast, even. Hello, my name's Jeff Smith. I'm here at Apostacon in Dallas, Texas, and this is my sexy story. Probably it goes back in my younger years, I met this girl at a club, and we decided to go back to her place, and we're having an after-hours party, it's like pouring down rain. This girl decides... We need to go get cigarettes. We say, fine, let's go get some cigarettes. So we get in my car. In reality, we just drove around the corner and started getting busy. And the funny thing is, we're in the front seat. And so it was my brand new car I just got. And so we started doing it in the front seat. And I'm in the driver's side. We're just going to town. And it got to the point where she was doing reverse cowboy. And every time I thrust into her, her face would plant up against to the windshield. It's just pouring down rain, and we were gone for about a good 20 minutes. And, you know, we get back, and, of course, everybody at the party's like, where's the cigarettes at? But the next day, I go to leave, and I notice she's got all this makeup smashed onto my front windshield. So, I mean, it was pretty it was pretty erotic and fun, but the thing was the steering wheel was getting in the way, and just her face being planted up against the windshield was... You know, the funny thing, because I would just show my friends because I didn't wash it. I just said, look at that. <laughs> That's my sexy story. <laughs> I still have that memory of that face planted on the windshield. Welcome to Secular Sexuality. Today we have with us Bill Zingroni. And Bill and I go back about, what, a year, two years at most. couple. I, I was at Vanderbilt. To speak my alma mater, I was really thrilled to go back to my own alma mater and speak. And Bill's there, and afterwards we go out for a beer afterwards, and he and I just clicked. Anyway, today Bill's in my home, in my studio, and he's here, came back, came over for the big Labor Day party. Bill is a, a developmental psychologist, and obviously we have a lot to talk about on that count. But thanks for being on the show, Bill. Thank you, Daryl. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Why in the hell would we want to hear your opinion about sex? What's what you got to? <laughs> you are a pretty sexy guy, though. <laughs> I guess. I think because being a uh, uh, psychologist and a college instructor and being a, a secular activist, I get to see a lot of uh, Christian religious ideas, not just in the United States, but worldwide, that control our thoughts about everything. Our, our culture is just insaturated with re religious views, especially on sex, as if any of you listen to Daryl's regular podcasts, you, you get it every week of mm -hmm. just how much we are infused by uh, religious thinking. So, yeah. 
I got a few things to say and all that. You um, I'm glad you do. We were talking a little bit earlier, and you were you were talking about how when I asked everybody if they <laughs> masturbate or not <laughs> the first time you were in one of my talks. <laughs> I saw you first at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale about maybe three, four years ago. I was yeah. teaching in Kentucky. A bunch of us came up to hear you. I had already read both your books at that time. And we're there with 100, 200 other strangers. And you asked, do you masturbate? And maybe less than half the crowd put their hand up, and I couldn't do it either. And there's nothing but strangers around me. And I'm like, what do I care? What, you know, couldn't do it. Two years later, here you speak at Vanderbilt, and me and every 90% of us had our hands up. There's still a few liars out there, but I had my hand up too. You know, and that's so indicative of religious thinking colors our whole view yeah and you're a rabid atheist and you couldn't exactly bring your... <laughs> exactly total non-believer and yet i you know i was uncomfortable too who's looking yeah. who's and all of us in the room masturbate anyway yeah or right. a good portion of us <laughs> well I, when you told me that story of course i didn't realize it at the time but mm -hmm. uh, i thought that was that was an excellent illustration of the very you thing we're to trying to do yeah brought me out <laughs> Well, tell, tell us a little bit about your background, because I, when I first met you, I thought, you have got an amazing story, besides being a psychologist, before you became a psychologist. Uh, I was in uh, medical distribution for most of my life, sold x-ray film, chemicals, different kinds of imaging work, lost my career job about 20 years ago, and uh, bounced around from industry in industry, one dead end after another, a bunch of us get laid off again, go look for work again, and as long as I was going broke, it was like, what do you want to do? What would you do if you won the lottery? And uh, actually, my sister-in-law asked me that. And I said, well, that's easy. I get my Ph.D. and go teach. And she just gives me this look like, well. <laughs> so I did. I went back in uh, 2005 and finished my Ph.D. in uh, developmental psych. I have an interest in cognitive development and especially cognitive evolution. Uh -huh. Started teaching. And uh -huh. I've been teaching for almost 10 years. Absolutely love it. Should have done it. 20 years ago, first time I got laid off, shoulda, coulda, woulda, uh -huh, but uh -huh. uh, it's all good. While in grad school, I got involved in secular activism, uh -huh. so that's kind of how all this started. I think that's great. It's Besides the fact that we're talking about sex on this, the fact that you did this later in life. Very much. Lots of people say, man, I could have done that, or I hope some people hear that and say, yeah, I could do that too now. So um, It was it was different going back to school at age 50. Uh, yeah. It was uh, different, but... Again, I should have done it 20 years before. Yeah. It was fa absolutely fantastic. Right. And then, like I said, as a complete sideline, I'd already been reading Bertrand Russell and mm -hmm. already read Dawkins and Hitchens and everybody. Never thought of, gee, I'll go back to school and be a secular activist. That wasn't on the agenda. Right. Uh, met a girl who was just forming the first uh, secular uh, student association group at Northern Illinois University up in DeKalb, Illinois. And about five of us got together, formed the first group. And uh, we all agreed to meet in the library, and it was pretty hilarious. Nobody would use the A word. We'd all go, are you here for the meeting? Are you here for the meeting? Nobody would say, atheist. <laughs> we, couldn't, we couldn't do it. Now turn the clock 10 years later, atheist is everywhere. It's no big deal. Yeah. But we were stuck, you know, right. again, religious. You don't even say that word. That was an evil word. Yeah. So uh, I helped form that group, and then I was a faculty advisor to two other uh, secular student groups in Kentucky. And when we formed the one at Northern 2006, we were like number 75 
on the oh. Secular Student Association uh-huh. list. The two I had in Kentucky were like in the 300s. Oh. And they're, they're pushing 400 secular student groups, whatever the exact number mm-hmm. is. It's three to 400 now. So I've kind of gotten to see this new enlightenment wave really take off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, this podcast didn't exist. Well, yeah. Right. You and I were talking about all the meetup groups out there in every city that didn't exist three, four years ago, and now there's dozens of them. It's getting interesting. It really is. It is. And it makes it fun for, for people like you and I, the educators that want to help people understand some of this stuff. I, I, love, uh, I love talking about it. I, do, I love, let's say, challenging the status quo that uh-huh. kind of keeps us all down. And, and you're teaching now what? what are, I, course- I teach psychology. <laughs> Uh, so mostly I'll teach intro to psychology and a couple developmental courses. You were telling me about the textbooks. I found that was fascinating. Uh, uh, what's new, uh, again, to, to keep in line with what we want to talk about here, is uh, all the introductory psych textbooks uh, are now, just in the last three years, all have a complete separate chapter on sex and gender. Huh. They used to be an afterthought to the developmental chapter couple pages, quarter of a chapter, something like that. And it might say a little bit about prenatal development and hormones and then something on sexual orientation, but not much. We have complete chapters now. So even kids going to uh, junior colleges are getting an introductory psych chapter complete on sex and gender with the the latest science. It's fantastic. Well, you know, it's somebody who learns about all that other stuff in terms of just the biology that informs developmental stuff so much. Oh. It, and how did the... We didn't even teach that before. And now in teaching it, you're opening a whole new window to this that, that wasn't even available. I'm, I'm loving it. It's forcing people to pay attention. Yes. To stuff they would never... Yes. Yeah. You know, however you feel about Bruce Caitlin Jenner. Right. Uh, and, you know, some people say, well, he's exploiting it and he's got his own TV show and all this stuff. The the best thing that's coming out of that is in the national conversation. Absolutely. We're all talking about it. Right. And sure enough, we talk about it in my psych I think class. it's interesting. She has been challenged herself. I just saw a thing the other day that she was against gay marriage. Oh, my. Un- until recently. Now, the, so even the person who is part the focus of the discussion is having to make some adjustments in, in her own uh, vision of how the world works. They're infected with religious it, abs- you know, background thinking. Absolutely. Where, where does any opposition to gay anything come from? Yeah. You know, I, I've got a sign on the back of my car that says, all misogyny, homophobia, and science denial will disappear when religion does. Yeah. What secular groups... Have any have promote any homo, homophobia anywhere? Yeah, yeah. What secular groups promote misogyny? Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, so that's uh-huh. interesting. Well, I'm glad to hear that about the uh, the textbooks. I don't think I've talked to anybody teaching psychology at the undergraduate level about this subject. Certainly not on the podcast. What are you seeing when freshmen come in for these classes, and what kind of response to the, are you kickback or pushback? Are you getting to some of the concepts you're teaching? I haven't really had any when i taught in kentucky uh i would get some kickback obviously to evolution right because a lot of them have been just absolutely steeped in creationism yeah i'm teaching now in northern illinois and i was lucky enough to teach a full human sexuality class a semester ago when another uh, uh teacher was on sabbatical i haven't had any kickback on the sexual stuff what i see with the younger generation is uh 
kind of echoes what Lawrence Krauss recently said a couple months ago at the I don't know, American Humanist meeting or something. He mentioned that gay marriage is a done deal with the mm-hmm. younger generation. They don't even worry about it. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest with you, the 18, 19-year-olds I speak, and I have a 18 and a 20-year-old uh, uh, son and daughter, they don't care. Sexual orientation is not anything they worry about. They've been telling me since eighth grade. They had a friend who was bi and another one who was gay, and this one's straight and this one's that. And they, they talk about it as if, well, this one's from this town and this one's from that town. It's not an issue. Yeah, I think Krauss is right on that one. Yeah. And so I don't get any pushback on the sex stuff. I really don't. In fact, they're very interested. And then when you show them some of the prenatal development, hormonal and genetic effects, then the light starts going on that, oh, that's why – Bruce Jenner, you know, right. is in the body of a man but has felt like a woman in his brain for all these years. Right. Or that's why somebody can look incredibly masculine and have uh, gay sexual orientation. You know, right. it doesn't matter. Here's why it's so varied, and it's all normal variation. Right, yeah. From the science end of it, there's nothing abnormal there. Yeah. yeah. So I don't get any pushback. Yeah, that's good I to really hear. don't. Oh, I, I'm wondering what it's like if you were to go back to Kentucky. <laughs> is it happening? Is it getting any better there? I think on the sex end with the young, I would say no, not much. I wouldn't get much pushback because they're too exposed. You know, it's too much in the mainstream. And right. they know somebody who's gay, right. you know, right. who maybe right. even hasn't come out. Right. And there was a big LGBT community in Kentucky. That was oh, huge. Yeah, right. And that was interesting to see that it was so strong in the South. Uh-huh. I think the only pushback I'd still get huge was on evolution, uh-huh, right. but not so much the sexual stuff. Well, that'll fall sooner or later. Yeah, <laughs> we're working on it. Information kills religion. That's it what it's all about. Yeah, I love Just that. Just keep you, putting it out there. I, you're, you're, that is your mantra, I think. It is. It's you, on the back of my car. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Information kills religion. Yeah, it well, sure does. Yeah. What was it people were saying for some time? The Internet is where religions go to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one, too. I think. Just the information explosion we live in nowadays, much of it mediated by the Internet, but also it's on every media. It's on TV. Mm -hmm. You know, it's podcasts like this. It's it's magazines, Mm -hmm. mainstream media. Everybody's talking about sexual and religious things that when you and I were kids, man, nobody talked about any of that. No. It just didn't exist. It was under the radar. Yeah. Completely. Every, every episode of my podcast for the last year would be taboo 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even 10 years ago Even would be tough. Ago. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's changing fast. It's yeah. really interesting to see. And when I look at my podcast as a part of uh, the media network that's okay. part of dogma debate and all that, mm-hmm. and I look at the size of David Smalley's audience on dogma debate – and there are many, many radio stations in the United States that don't have as many listeners as David's got, and his is international. Yeah. And there's probably a number of radio stations that don't have as many listeners as I've got, and I'm not that big a podcast, but, you know, 2,000-plus more people listening every week. There's a lot of radio stations that don't have 2,000 people listening to them. That's true. So That's true. The, the impact of yeah. this media— Yeah is far more than the old mainstream media yes, was. That's yes, really interesting. Yes, it's amazing. And we're, we're, and we're not censored. <laughs> I can say any no. fucking thing I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is the accessibility. Everybody has a tablet or a smartphone in the palm of their hand. Yeah. So you don't even have to go home and get hooked up and take time and set it aside to get connected. You punch it in on your smartphone and you're listening to Daryl Ray, you're you're, you're uh, you know, yeah. listening to the dogma debate or thinking yeah. atheist or whatever it might be, 
and then you can get on mine and dozens of other blogs and yeah. read the same thing. You can even get on Fox News, and they're talking about <laughs> religion and sex, etc. Yeah. The conversation's everywhere. That's wonderful. And it gets the information out. Even when they're condemning it on Fox <laughs> News, it's it's uh, out there. They yes. can't stop. Yes. Not <laughs> It is kind of a case of no publicity is right. bad publicity. Well, I do want to plug your blog because you all, oh. you write a lot of cool stuff. Well, so just let people know. Where, where can they find your blog? Um, we'll, we'll the blog is at wearedone.org. Okay. Easy to remember. We are yeah. done. One sentence. Okay. And it's called Dispatches from the New Enlightenment. I've I, uh, been blogging about two years. Well, 300 some posts out there, and uh, I'm a nobody. I'm not a national known somebody, and I'm uh, going to hit 300,000 uh, reads in another week or two here. I'm just absolutely thrilled. I try and give people their money's worth. I do a little research and put something out every two, three days, and mm-hmm. I usually don't comment on all the mainstream stuff that's happening. I go for things maybe other people aren't covering, so. Good. Good. Well, yeah, well, thank you for letting I, me I, can't, I have not read everything by a long shot, but what I have read, I've always enjoyed. So, and you're a good writer. You're, you make well, it easy to easy to understand. Well, let's let's get on to some other stuff that you and I outlined before we got on, and that is okay. this whole notion of the sexualization of breastfeeding. Isn't that crazy? I mean, what? How many cultures are there out there where women are walking around breastfeeding in public and nobody gives a shit? And but here we have to sexualize it. You can blame that one on the big two, right? Christianity and Islam are about as bad. Yeah. Right. That any exposure of the woman's skin is, you know, can somehow be sexualized. Yeah. You know, with yeah. Islam, it can be a, a, a nape of her, her neck shows or a little lock of hair falls out, and the religious police in the mall in Saudi Arabia will quick make you cover up. Here in the United States, if you dare breastfeed in public, you may get somebody who's going to tell you, I can see too much of your breast skin. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I've written about three blogs on it only because I bumped into it in the mainstream media three, four different times where people are getting that conversation out. And there's a lot of people arguing for this is crazy. This is the most natural, normal, wonderful thing in the world. Yeah. It It's not going to, you know, uh, one Christian commenter said that, well, the reason they need to cover up is I'm never going to stop thinking about that. <laughs> and. There's a lot of 12-year-old boys that are going to be permanently damaged, you know. Oh, right. And here we go again, right? (laughs) And it's just ludicrous. You know, there's a picture of the Madonna uh, from about the 12th or 13th century breastfeeding. Breastfeeding. Okay, that's... That goes back to Egypt and uh, Isis breastfeeding, uh, uh, I don't know, Horus or something. Yeah, right, right. the medieval painters, you know, copied that with the Madonna and Jesus. And now all of a sudden that's evil, thanks yeah, to right. conservative Christianity. It's <laughs> ridiculous. We are so uptight in this, uh, in our U.S. culture compared to, you know, Europe and, and Australia, Canada, yeah. you know, so many other cultures, South American cultures. A woman breastfeeding openly in public, well, so what? And yeah. there's 10 kids around her. Nobody cares. She's breastfeeding a kid. Yeah. Only here in Christian America. Is it a big problem or the Middle East? My uh, my colleague and friend, Dr. Marty Klein, he uh, he asked the question, do you know what you call a nude beach in Italy? What? A beach. A beach. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, nobody it, cares. Th- nobody gives it a shit. It doesn't I was in, matter. I was in France one time out, out on the beach, and yeah, people walking around topless and it was okay. I'm I'm the one that's uncomfortable because I've never seen this before. This is like 1989 or sure, something. Sure, sure. Even then, it was 25, what, 30 years ago. What's interesting is uh, I only 
glanced at headlines. I haven't read this yet. I'll probably do a blog on it in the next two weeks. There's a lot of movement toward women being able to bare their breasts. I love it. Free the nipple. And most of it is younger women are pushing this saying, why can't I? 18, 19-year-olds and such. Again, you're watching the young move forward and go, this stuff is bullshit. Yeah, right. They know better. They're not. They're too informed. They're yeah. too connected to the world. And I saw a thing on Facebook the other day, and some per- person was c- complained about this picture that it had three or four men with topless and three or four women topless all in the same picture. Facebook condemned it or yep. took it down, and they yep. protested it. And I think I saw that Facebook put it back up. I'm not sure, but times are changing. Maybe Zuckerberg's not as afraid as breasts. Times, <laughs> times are changing. On the on the breastfeeding thing, there was a, a a magazine editor who published an article talking about the breastfeeding controversy. Mm-hmm. I think it was the Australian L magazine. Don't quote me on that one. I'd have to look it up. But in the subscriptions that went out to people's homes was a picture of a very attractive model breastfeeding her child. But the copies that went to the newsstands and in the grocery stores they used a different picture where she was covered up the editor took a lot of flack but she said you know i'm stuck in the middle i gotta sell magazines keep my advertisers happy but i still want to bring this issue out because we need to talk about it women should be able to breastfeed in public there's only so far i can go given my position yeah i loved it she got the conversation going yeah. it's out there and then the internet picked it up and we all saw the pictures anyways and <laughs> the conversation starts one more yeah. time mainstream media can't control it like they used <laughs> to be able to it's the, the internet picked it up and there you go how are you going to keep them down on the farm anymore, <laughs> yeah once right? they've seen Gay it's Bird. very hard to keep people in the christian cocoon anymore yeah. uh you, you're seeing the backlash from the conservative evangelical movement, the homeschooling thing. It's the only way they can kid, keep the kid away from things yeah. is to bring them home. Don't let them out in the world. Let's bring them in here and feed them nothing but nonsense. Yeah. And what a horrible thing that is. Yeah. That is one thing I wanted to, we didn't write down earlier that yeah. we were going to talk about, was that I really feel any of that religious education is very much child abuse. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a recent flap. Lawrence Krauss again said, teaching creationism to kids is child abuse. Uh-huh. And Neil Carter, the, the atheist blogger, said, no, that's too harsh. We shouldn't say it that way. And, boy, i got to side with Uncle Larry on this one. Oh, okay. Uh, I think it's very much child abuse. When you teach a child anything that you know is a blatant lie, and I don't care how fervently you believe it, because right. you know it's a lie. That's why you're homeschooling them, because you yeah. know if he goes to school – the textbooks are going to say X is 2,000 years old or the science of sexual orientation and the things that are, like I told you, are starting to show up in the intro to the Sykes book, uh, psych books about sex. That's out there, and it's on the Internet in the palm of your hand. So mm-hmm. you're watching this backlash where, boy, we really got to try and bring them home, keep them in the cocoon. And, and as far as I, that's child abuse, you're setting that child up for horrible cognitive dissonance later yeah. and guilt. And, yeah. Plus all the other horrible things they teach well, them about sex. And, right? and the, yeah, the whole sexual education thing within the Christian community, you, you've heard on my podcast, oh. terrible struggles that people have yeah. with that are totally unnecessary. Why should somebody yeah. be a virgin at the age of 41 yeah. and find out that everything they were taught was bullshit yeah. from the time they were born? That is a lifetime of yeah. anxiety. Yeah. And that's that, not abuse. And yeah, what is it if it's not abuse? Yeah, yeah. this is this is creating enormous. Well, cognitive dissonance is is mild compared to the depression to, that yes. comes from it. That comes with it yes. because that's what's happening. These people, I mean, I've interviewed so many people that were just 
depressed for years. Yeah. And if you take away the religious indoctrination about their own bodies, the depression goes away. Yeah, there's nothing there. I interviewed a woman, uh, well, she was right on this podcast, said, when I, when I left my religion and got divorced from my religiously abusive husband, I, I stopped all my medications and haven't had them since. Yeah. But yeah. so what, what it's illustrating to me is that religion's causing clinical depression. Yes. And it's long-term. And, and you that see that, you know, in your Absolutely. Uh, circles, you see that all the time. People don't realize that, and that's what I think the value of your podcast and other things coming up. People don't realize how bad it does to them, whether it's on creationism or sex yeah. or whatever misinformation you're given. It sets you up for a lifetime right, right. of dissonance and anxiety, depression, etc. It's horrible. Well, I think we need, maybe we need to redefine what abuse is or isn't. It, it, the thing is that when you put religion in there, people get really upset that you yes. shouldn't be blaming religion for people's depression. Well, the fact is we've got pretty good proof that people's depression comes from religion. Yeah. And some of that, a significant amount of that comes from their childhood sexual training about their bodies are their biggest enemy. Right. You were born broken. The only way you can get unbroken is come yeah. back to Jesus and never yeah. masturbate, never have sex before marriage and all these. Yeah. Wow, that's just fucking crazy. And it will drive you crazy. Yeah. The religions really put a trip on us that we're just trying to get out of now. And usually people think, well, it's just, you know, Christianity and Islam are tough on sex. Even the Eastern religions aren't so good. If you look at Buddhism, for example, and you read their their literature, despite what the Dalai Lama might say, you read their actual literature, even his own school. The idea is that anything but vaginal heterosexual sex for the purpose of procreation is considered unnatural. Yeah. So masturbation's unnatural. Homosexuality's unnatural. Anal, oral, anything other than to create a kid. Well, that's just like Catholic and just Christian like Catholic. dogma that goes back to St. Augustine, and Aquinas and all that medieval thinking that is now ensconced in, you know, Christian thinking, that anything other than that is unnatural and you really shouldn't do it. It's in all the religions. It's yeah, terrible. Right. You mentioned the natural law, uh, I think, earlier in our discussion. It goes back well over a thousand years in terms of theological uh, yep. theological notion. Well, let's take a break here, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Bill about some of what he's seeing and learning and teaching with respect to human sexuality and some of the people he knows that are into that. You're listening to Secular Sexuality, only on Secular Media Network. Here's an excerpt from Sex and God by Daryl Ray. Hello, I'm David Smalley, the proud producer for this audiobook and president of Dogma Debate. If you don't know Dr. Daryl Ray, you're going to find this book an eye-opening and entertaining experience. Of course, this book is about sex, but it's also about so much more, and you'll find out what I mean as you listen. Dr. Ray takes us on a journey that demonstrates exactly how much religious culture has distorted our views of our bodies, our relationships, our expectations about marriage, dating and love, and even our politics. Dr. Daryl Ray is a psychologist and a lifelong student of religion and culture. He's been seen on ABC News, on many national radio shows, and even international documentaries. He was recently featured on an episode of Professor Richard Dawkins' Sex, Death, and the Meaning of Life. His research on sex and secularism has been written about in Playboy magazine, the Los Angeles Times, the Daily Mail, the New York Times, and dozens of other newspapers and magazines. He's the founder of the international organization RecoveringFromReligion.org and writes an answer column for Teens Without God. 
He's traveled and spoken throughout North America, Europe, and Australia. You can listen to interviews of him on many podcasts, including Dogma Debate, that deal with religion or human sexuality. After reading Sex and God, you may want to learn more about the psychology of religion. I know I did. For this, you can listen to his earlier bestseller, The God Virus. It's on audiobook as well. You can find many of his talks on YouTube, including topics like the psychology of religion, sex and religion, hypnosis and church services, that's one of my favorites, and evolution and religious sexuality. I sincerely hope this audiobook does for you what it did for me. Aside from being a pleasurable, entertaining, and funny experience, I learned a lot from this one, and I'm sure you will too. Sex and God by Daryl Ray is available at AtheistAudiobooks.com. You're listening to Secular Sexuality, only on Secular Media Network. Welcome back to Secular Sexuality. So, Bill, I'm, I'm curious, what are you teaching your students now around, I mean, we, we mentioned earlier uh, Caitlyn Jenner, but what's going on there? What's some of the science that you're teaching the kids? And, you know, it's in the textbooks. You mentioned new chapters are now coming out with the, what are you seeing there? Um, what's interesting, like I said, it's just been the last few years. The intro psych textbooks all have their own special chapter on sex and gender. And we get in a lot into the current hot off the press science on prenatal development uh-huh. and the effects of genes and especially hormones in the womb. You can be genetically male or female. Mostly everybody knows that from high school biology, XX and right. XY. But all the hormonal cascade that starts right after the Y chromosome shows up. All that has to operate over the next six, seven months, especially the first few weeks. But then you, you have to see the uh, uh, testosterone needs to be produced to change the default value of a female mm-hmm. into a male. You know, when I, when I tease this to my intro students, it's great because I go, that's why males have nipples. Did you ever think about that? <laughs> We're never going to nurse anybody, but we've got nipples. Why do we have nipples? Well, because the default value is female. If you don't put a Y chromosome into the mix and, and that produces gets the testosterone cascade started, it's going to turn into a female. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've got to close up the lips of the vagina and form a scrotum. You've got to enlarge the clitoris to form a penis. That takes hormonal uh, infant. Uh The current science, what's great, people like uh, Veronica Drantz, the intersex activist, Uh uh, she's got an excellent YouTube video out there. Uh, I use that in my class. I use your podcasts in my classes, both intro and the human sexuality class. It's it's fantastic. So people are getting the latest on what we know about how sex and gender forms in the womb. Mm -hmm. So when hormones don't completely work, you get intersex people with ambiguous genitals. And how do we treat that now versus how we used to? The brain, later on, there's a surge of testosterone, I think around four or five months, that androgenizes or makes the brain male. Again, you've got to go from default female to male. So if someone has androgenin insensitivity syndrome where testosterone doesn't have an effect, they can be genetically male, but be born physically and mentally brainwise, a uh, female. Right. Okay. So now kids, the eyes light up like, oh, is that how somebody can be in one body, but feel like the other gender in inside? Hello. Okay. We've known this stuff from the animal literature 
for almost 100 years. Yeah, you know? I was going to say, going back at least 50 years yeah. or more. Well, there was some, uh, I read early experiments, or not actually experiments, but just observations around cattle. Yeah. And, and noticing this in cattle by 1910 or 1920. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And nobody wanted to touch that with right. humans. Why? Again, because of the religious, you know, stifling influence that we have yeah. that we don't talk about things. And you're watching that disappear, especially with the young. Yeah. The other thing that ties in with this that I said, the young don't care what sexual orientation you are. Uh, Krauss is right. You know, gay marriage is a done deal with this generation. We don't care. That's why it's falling. Even kids in my classes, I, I do a poll with every class for the last six, seven years. Uh, it's an optional personal info form, and they can say what major they are, what their occupational dream is. And I throw religious affiliation, and it's purely optional. Fill out whatever you want, whatever you don't. Mm-hmm. And usually they f- they'll fill it in. Even in Kentucky, I would get a third of the kids, no religious affiliation or out-and-out atheists, even oh, in Kentucky. Really? And you see 30 40% of that up here in northern Illinois. What's interesting, though, even the kids that identify as Catholic or whatever, they are not their grandparents Catholic. <laughs> they don't care about birth control. They're on the Internet. They got Internet porn. They know about anal oral sex. Uh-huh. They know about everything. They don't care about sexual orientation. They use birth control. So even if a 20-year-old today identifies as a Catholic, it's not the Catholics like when you and I were growing up. Right. It's yeah. really different. So they're leading the charge. So when you throw them all this science, you know, you asked me before, do I get any pushback? You really don't. Huh. They eat it up. Interesting. They eat it up. Yeah, it's kind of cool. That so is really good. The young is changing. You know, so even if they still identify, boy, they're not the kind of Catholic or Protestant or Methodist or even Baptist that you yeah. used to have. It's going to be an interesting world out there. It is. And my thesis, of course, is that sex is the weak spot of religion. If we just keep pushing that, it just is going to blow it wide open. Yeah, you can talk about evolution all you want, but they can resist that. They can't resist the sex stuff. No, no. And it's once the sex stuff falls, then I think we'll see things like evolution yeah. Start start coming in. And the young are interested in sex. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely interested. Even the old people are interested in sex. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I would never think about sex. No. Nah. Nah. <laughs> yeah. Now, and I have no idea if you go into this or talk about it at all. Do you, do you ever talk about or have any interchange with the students around circumcision? You know, that hasn't come up. There was a, in the human sexuality course, there was... Um, we did do a section on female genital mutilation uh-huh. and circumcision that some cultures do it, some don't. Right. It wasn't something controversial, where, at least with circumcision, okay. where we went anywhere with it. Okay. It's, not, it's not a hot topic, let's put it that, at least from my experience. Well, I'm, but, I'm, but it's unnecessary. I mean, yeah. you know, if anything, you know, we, we've proven that it's, it's a cultural thing, whether you're cut right. or uncut. It isn't going to make a whole hell of a lot of difference. Right. Okay. And so it is not a necessary procedure like we used to think it was. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, involved in the intactivist movement. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, leave them alone. Don't. Yeah, leave them alone. Yeah, why take that foreskin off? There's no point. Bill, you you and I were talking about the whole notion of how religion impacts. Well, I think your your example was the Catholic Church. Let's talk about that a bit. On the well, we brought it up with the idea of natural law and everything. And what's interesting is I I did a blog on this I don't know, six or eight months ago, looking at uh, you know, the Catholic stance on birth control. And it looks like that most of the Christian churches, again, it was unnatural. You shouldn't do it. That's 
similar to how Islam thinks about it. That's a whole other subject. But in the early 1900s, most of the Protestant churches dropped the restrictions on birth control. Only the Catholic Church hung on to it, and they're hardcore. What's interesting, though, is you can look at any of the predominantly Catholic countries that are developed, Italy, Poland, you know, even the United States with a strong Catholic. Most Catholic women will report using birth control. Oh, yeah. So if right. you're educated, you use it and you ignore the Catholic dogma. Italy has one of the lowest birth rates in, in, in the <laughs> war in all of Europe. Poland's not far behind. And I'm Italian, so I can't believe they all just stopped fucking. Daryl, you can't tell me that. That isn't what happened. Okay? Okay. Right? They're all masturbating, though. Yeah, maybe. The, yeah. But then you look at the... Uh, less developed countries, you know, the South American countries, the Philippines, etc., that are very strongly Catholic. Mm. What the Pope and the Church says goes. So birth control is used. Their birth rates that you mentioned, theirs are high, very high, very high yeah. compared to the rest of the world. Women are still having four, five, six, and seven kids when most of the rest of the world, like Thailand and other countries, have gotten very progressive. They've instituted birth control policies, and everybody knows if you give women their reproductive rights, as Hitchens used to say, give women their reproductive rights, poverty goes down, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Well, the Catholic Church is still telling these people, no, don't do it. So some woman's got four or five kids she can't feed, and now she's pregnant with number six because the Pope and the Church say it's a good idea. In fact, the Philippines just uh, recently put through some laws to make birth control available. And, of course, the biggest opposition was the Catholic, Catholic Church. Bitches, yeah. bishops fighting it just tooth and nail. What's interesting is some sociologist out there must have done the numbers, and I'm sure it'll be the subject of a later blog, but I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations. And if you look at 1.2 billion Catholics out there, and you know, 500 million of them are women, and then you figure out how many of those women would be a reproductive age, and then you look at just the undeveloped countries, you know, we could be talking – Millions of kids, maybe tens of millions, maybe a hundred million kids, born into crushing poverty. And how many of those kids die an early death before age five because of mom is still having five, six kids when she couldn't first feed the first three because of Catholic dogma that won't let go. So you do those numbers and the comparison is horrible. Um, If you look at any of the outfits that track Islamic terrorism, Islamic terrorism that we're all concerned about, and we should be, is like 18 to 20,000 people are killed per year, mostly other Muslims in sectarian violence. 18 to 20,000 people, a horrible number, but maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of kids die because of the Catholic birth control dogma. And we don't even think about it. It's not in the radar. It's not in the media. Nobody's talking about it. Right. That's heinous. That's absolutely. I mean, I'll we be upfront. I hate religion that. for that, for that, and many other reasons. But that's a huge one we ought to be incensed about. If we're going to worry about Muslim terrorism, what about religious terrorism? Yeah, Catholic terrorism here. Or, and we could look <laughs> at the uh, the suicide rate of LGBT people right. that are in Christian communica- uh, communities. Right. It's estimated to be two, three, five, tens higher. Mm-hmm. Those are big numbers of kids that die every year higher than the normal suicide rate right. because of Christian pressure. We, you know, oh, well, let it go. It's religion. It's part, you know, it's natural part of our culture. It's just there. It's amazing. I, yeah, it really is. And I, I guess I hadn't really put the numbers to it like you just did. 
But it, I need to really codify that. But somebody out there must have done it. Yeah. Somebody smarter than me and That's somebody who studies of, that kind of stuff. A lot of poverty. It's got to be a huge number. A lot of suffering, a lot of early death. Horrible. And you don't even factor in, the, even the kids that do survive, how much cognitive developmental yes. delay exactly. is there as a result of malnutrition and no access to education and competing exactly. with five or six other kids at yeah. minimum for yeah. just basic necessity. Yeah, yeah there's there's a You're lot there. Promulgating misery yeah. even without the deaths. It's right. terrible. Well, Bill, it's been a great talking yeah. to you here. Thanks thanks for taking the time it's been to been wonderful do this. being here. Yeah, we're looking forward to having a good party here later. I bet it's so. going to be a killer one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening to the Secular Sexuality Podcast today. And as you know, I want you to go out and give yourself a good orgasm today. Definitely give somebody else one. <laughs> the Secular Sexuality Podcast, hosted by Dr. Daryl Ray, is produced and published by Dogma Debate, LLC, in association with Secular Media Group. Brought to you by AtheistAudiobooks.com. Learn more at dogmadebate.com slash secularsexuality.